Father, thank you for um, thank you for the joy that comes in the morning. Thank you for um, thank you that we can love enough to know the sorrow of when people pass on, and um, <coughs> just thank you for family and for um, and for the way that you have put us in families. Your word says that you you've put the orphans in families and. Um, I thank you for it, Lord. Um, I thank you that we can uh, know the blessing of that. And and though that comes with pain and sorrow uh, many times, you are still a God who brings um, joy in the morning and, and peace when there should be no peace and hope when uh, everything else looks bleak. So I thank you, Lord, that you are that God and that you are my God and our God. And... I pray, Lord, that as we go on through this Second Peter, as we're uh, trying to understand and learn more about you, that we would really make it our business to apply what we know, what we learn about you, and so that we won't have heads stuffed full of knowledge, but we will have hearts and minds and wills to do your will and to follow your way. And I thank you, Lord, that that is the promise you make us in Jesus, that we will be like him. And so, Father, tonight we're all here on a wintry, wintry almost wintry, blustery night. And um, I pray, Father, that you are honoured in our conversation and in our thinking. And we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Second Peter. Um, chapter 1 of Second Peter is quite a positive chapter. may not seem it all the way through. It changes sort of halfway through, but um, so in, in chapter 1, Peter wants to encourage his readers to understand what's available to them and to in, encourage them to minister to themselves what is available in Christ Jesus. And he talks about these magnificent and precious promises that are available and that will see believers through to godliness and holiness and, and grow them up in the knowledge of Christ and and that grace and peace will be multiplied to them in that knowledge. So um, the whole ch- the whole chapter, at least down until about verse 15, it's very encouraging. It's it's you know keep doing this, then you'll be sure that you are on the right path. You'll be sure that you are not going blind or short-sighted, and and um, uh, and that will be good. Chapter 2, he starts in the middle of chapter 1, really, or at the end of chapter 1, and then into chapter 2, is kind of the reverse of chapter 1. So it's his very stark portrayal of the opposite of chapter one. This is what people look like who don't minister to themselves, who don't grow in the knowledge of Christ, who don't lay hold of the precious and magnificent promises, who actually, uh, as far as Peter's concerned, the false prophets and teachers are not believers. I mean, I think we've said that a couple of times. They're not believers. You know that because at the end of chapter two, he says they return from where they came. A dog returns to its vomit and... um, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. So um, these are not believers. He's not talking about them as believers. Peter calls believers sheep. And these, he talks about them as dogs and pigs or sows. So, um, And so what I think he's trying to do is to show the opposite. This is what the opposite is like. So in order to give us a, a little bit of an understanding and, uh, and some discernment about how to tell the difference 
between a real teacher of God's word and a false teacher, a real prophet and a false prophet, a real believer and a false believer. How will you tell the difference? And, and the major way that you will tell the difference between someone who believes and someone who doesn't is that they will be growing in the knowledge of Christ and they will become, be becoming more like him as time goes by. Um, that by necessity means you can't judge the book by its cover when you first pick it up. You can't make judgments about people's salvation or about their path of sanctification just by a meeting or two. Um, he's talking to people who he knows live together, who do life together, who share things together. And he's, what he's saying is the evidence of salvation is clear. And all the New Testament writers say that. James, just the book, a couple of books before this, James will say, faith without works is dead. What use is it if you say you have faith but no works? That faith is dead. It's worthless. That, and Paul will say um, that we are being transformed into the image of Christ, that the, if we live by the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the flesh, we will live, but if we live by the flesh, we will die. So all of the New Testament writers say the same thing. Jesus himself said, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we in your name do this and do that? And I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. So it is possible to be uh, on the fringes or to look like you're a Christian, sound like you're a Christian, but if there is no growth in the knowledge of Christ and no transformation in your life, then what Peter is saying is, you are not a believer. And these teachers that are not growing in the knowledge of Christ and who are offering the same fake stuff, plastic words, as he said we looked at last time, you know, they, we need to be able to discern the real from the fake. Um, uh, last week in, in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2, we talked about them denying the master who, who bought them and instead of submitting to Christ's way, they despise authority and they teach other people um, that by grace we're free in Christ and that means we can do whatever we like. We can use our bodies in any way we want to. Um, so we're going to go on now from um, verse 10 to verse 22. Um, what's... In chapter 2, if you had to say what the main point of the chapter is, what would it be? Just before we read the... False teachers. Yeah, false teachers and... But, but, but more than that, for chapter 1 was the growth of people who are real believers and, and by extension, real teachers. So, <coughs> and, and, and what they can expect. What can you expect if you are a real believer, a real teacher in the Lord Jesus? What, what would you be expecting to see in your life? Growth and, but grace and peace. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the true knowledge of Jesus. That's how he begins the letter. I think it's verse 2. Um, and then in chapter 2, when he's talking about false teachers, false believers, false, fake everything, what can you expect from that? What will be the end, your end? What will, destruction. Who said destruction? Yeah, destruction. Judgment. Judgment is coming. And I think the, the, um, the, ma the main point in chapter 2 is that though it looks like God is not doing anything, he will judge. He will judge false teachers, false prophets. He will judge them. Their end is sure. And he used various things in chapter 2 to show that God has already judged false prophets and, so, and uh, false teachers, and he will do so again. So could somebody read verse 10 to verse 22, please? 
I know it starts in the middle of a verse, but if you just kind of start um, in 10b, shall we say, so halfway through the verse. Chapter what? Chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 10b, which starts with daring, all the way down to 22. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off, wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Thank you. Okay, so um, these false teachers are going to be destroyed. And Peter has already in the first half of the chapter given examples of who's already been destroyed in the past. What are the examples? Can you remember that he gave in the first half, which Debbie didn't read? What, 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 what happened and who were they? Lot was one. Yeah, where was Lot? So the judgment fell on Sodom and Gomorrah, which is where he was. So uh, Lot was Lot escaped, but the judgment was on Sodom and Gomorrah. And the other two judgments that Peter uses? Noah. Noah. So the world was judged by flood. And the third, the third one? 
Yes, angels were judged. And they were, last time we looked at them, they were confined to a place called Tartarus, which is uh, a place specifically reserved for those angels so or demons. So Genesis 6 talks about them. There was a time when the sons of God saw that the, sons, uh, the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves. And those angels, those specific ones, were um, judged by God and held, are held in a place called Tartarus. Um, so given that he's already started with Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the flood and the angels, he's going to go on now into here to describe the teachers that are uh, teaching and the prophets that are, are falsely prophesying. And he's describing them and, and what they do um, because he wants to make sure that they understand these two will be judged. These two will be judged. And Jude says exactly the same thing. Jude and Second Peter are very similar. If you just turn to Jude, I'll read just a few verses from verse 8. Um, actually, I'll read probably um, from verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties, but Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. So Jude and, and Peter both talk about the same events. Um, Jude adds a couple more and um, is perhaps got a full, more full um, description of them. But, but they're basically saying the same thing. Um, there were angels that went the same way as Sodom and Gomorrah. So how, what was the big uh, sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, homosexuality, but I think you can broaden it to immorality, sexual immorality. That was the sin of the, uh, peop the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and Jude describes it as defiling the flesh, defiling the flesh. And also he says that um, they reject authority, they reject authority, and they revile angelic majesties. And he uses Michael as an example of an angelic majesty that didn't even dare to do that. Um, so what makes someone uh, revi uh, reject authority, do you think? Why would a, a teacher or a prophet or a false pro uh, prophet or teacher reject authority? What does he mean by that? Do you think? That's Jude. Yeah, it's rebellion, yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes, this is false prophets and false teachers. So if you know that they are rejecting authority and reviling angelic majesties, what, what would be a word that you could use to describe false teachers and false prophets? What would be a condition or a, yeah, a word that you could use to describe them? Heretical. Yeah, it's probably, there's probably lots of words, sorry, but arrogant is the Arrogal. word that I'm thinking. The people who... who um, 
reject authority and feel free to revile whomever they want to and think that they have the authority to do that and the wherewithal to do that. You must be pretty arrogant to think that you can do that. Um, so uh, he used Michael as an example. What do you know about Michael? Yeah, he's the chief prince. Daniel calls him, or Gabriel calls him, the chief prince of um, Israel. When Gabriel comes to Daniel after Daniel's been praying for, for three weeks, he says, on the day that you began to pray, I was sent to you, but I was withstood by the prince of Persia, uh, an angel of Persia, or demon of Persia. And, and, and I was fighting there, and only Michael, your prince, came to help me. And then um, that's in chapter... Um, 10, and then in chapter 12 of Daniel, Daniel, Daniel's told, there's going to be a time of great distress for your people. And, but that, at that time, Michael, your prince, will arise to, to help you. So Michael is, is one of the top angels. And what Jude is saying is even he didn't dare to revile um, and rebuke Satan. Now... What I want to get at with that, why I think what Peter and Jude are both uh, bringing that up for, is that I think in our day, and probably in Peter's day and Jude's day, there was a lot of so-called deliverance ministry. A lot of people who start whole ministries to deliver believers or non-believers from demonic activity. Um, and I think that you know, unbelievers can be inhabited by demons. They can be beset by demons. But believers, it's impossible for you to have a, um, a demon within. Uh, why would that be? Why is it impossible? Yeah, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So it's impossible for you to be inhabited by both the Holy Spirit and a demon. That's impossible. Of course, Satan can attack... That's why we need to put on the armor. That's why we need to stand strong. That's why we need to surrender to the Lord. Of course, he can attack. We can make ourselves vulnerable to him, but he cannot inhabit. So deliverance ministry, deliverance ministry in and of itself can only be for unbelievers, not for believers. Yet we have hundreds of thousands of believers going for <laughs> deliverance. So... The reason I think Peter and Jude both are talking about this is that that probably started 2,000 years ago, and it's no different now. It's no different now. And um, these false teachers, false prophets, I think set up in their arrogance and in their pride, come to me and I will deliver you. Come to me because I have the right uh, program. Come to me and we'll sort this out together. Come to me and we'll do this. And um, there's great danger in it. To, I feel there's great danger in it. In our day, yes, in our day, because, um, yeah, because I think believers are led, are led astray by thinking they could have a demon. So they live in fear their whole life, thinking they ha need deliverance from something that is gone. mentioned to you about a person who was an ex-Anglican uh, priest who is actually talking to um, a congregation probably once every five weeks 
This happened twice when he denied the existence of salt, first of all. Then he thought the story of the washing of Jesus' feet was just a made-up story, just for to put over an idea. But on the last occasion, he made a very, very clever <coughs> who has a mental problem. Really made him cry mm. with with horror mm. of what's being said. Mm. And I just wonder on earth. I mean, I didn't go to. I said I'm not going. Mm. I just think he's wrong. Totally mm. wrong. But it's very difficult when this person is accepted by yeah, the main parenthesis mm. leadership. Yes, it is difficult. Mm. Um, and that are giving him the opportunity to actually yeah. on yeah. a fixed subject he's mm. given, mm. but he just turns it to. Yeah. Mm. It's it's extremely difficult because it that's a lie that you need deliverance if you are a believer. You are delivered if you are a believer. You have been past tense delivered. Now that doesn't mean that you're not still suffering the consequences of something or that you might need help praying your way through those kind of thoughts and and ideas that the enemy is sending to you. But you cannot if you are a Christian Whenever Jesus went anywhere, demons had to flee. Mm. They could not remain because he's God. Now, if, he's go if that was when he was walking the planet, can you imagine what it must be like if he takes up residence within you? How could it possibly be? Um, and there's just such damage done. There's such damage done to Christians who live their whole lives believing that they are at the mercy of a demon or demons that they need deliverance from when actually they are totally and utterly free in Christ. Mm. What about oppression? Mm. Um, you know, a lot of people um, sort of think deliverance is for all, you know, all things, including oppression. You know, if you're being oppressed by a spirit, I remember hearing a talk about Yeah, I, yeah, I mean... I, from the outside, you mean? Yeah, I think that happens. I think Satan's at work all the time. We're in a war. I think most of us don't realize it, but when we became Christians, we were put on the front lines. We're in, we're in a battle, a, a massive war, and it is vicious, and the enemy's vicious, and he can make you think all sorts of things, and he can make you oppressed, and, and if you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. So if you open yourself up to him, he will, of course, zero in on your vulnerability. And he will constantly be sending fiery darts, Paul calls it, into that vulnerable spot, of course. And you may need help seeing that spot and then praying about that. Yeah, I mean, that, that's not deliverance. That's something different. Yeah, they do. They do. But I know of people who have, who you need deliverance from this, you need deliverance from that, you need deliverance from the other thing. And that's a fearsome thing to be told after you're a believer that you need deliverance. Because what's it, what's, what did Christ do if he didn't deliver me? If he didn't defeat Satan, if he didn't de defeat darkness, if he didn't defeat even my own flesh, if he didn't do that, well, what did he do? Um, so, yeah, so when we're looking at this and we're thinking, because you could be thinking, well, what's Michael got to do with me? You know, he's a, he's a chief prince of Israel, but doesn't have much to do with me. That's what it's got to do with you, that, um, that we have huge ministries now, in our time, promising deliverance. 
to people who are already delivered. And it's a tragedy, really. Um, Michael's mentioned in Revelation, uh, event at the end, during the tribulation, there will, at the start or in the middle or whenever it is, there will be a war in heaven, Satan will be thrown down. It's Revelation 12, I think about 9 or 10. Satan will be thrown down and his angels will go with him and he will be enraged on the earth because he knows he has only a short time. John will write that about um, Satan. So, um, but even, even Michael would not revile um, the um, angelic majesties. And um, so they're rejecting authority. If you reject authority, who are you actually rejecting? Yes, you're erect. Yes, exactly. You're rejecting God. So you remember Peter says even denying the master who bought them, it's the same thing. You're rejecting authority, and it shows how puffed up you are. And I hate to tell you, but the most puffed up people know the most scripture. That's just the bottom line. And um, and I know many people who know a lot of scripture, and it hasn't changed them one bit. They still live the same way. They still think the same way. They have so much pride and arrogance that it's just impossible sometimes to get through to them. Because knowledge puffs up. That's what Paul says, doesn't it? Knowledge puffs up. And um, unfortunately, false teachers are like that. They know a lot. They're usually very charismatic. They are usually saying the things that you want to hear. Um, and they know scripture. They know scripture. They can quote you chapter and verse. You know, I, 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 I know. I mean, I've just tried to memorize as much of scripture as I can. You know, so Romans 8, I can just read through Romans 8. And, you know, oh, yeah, I can tell you anything you need to know about this or that or the other thing. But that hasn't made any difference to their life. You must know people like that. You must. Because they're all over. And this type of study... Especially the, um, if you're doing the precept workbook, um, because of the, in the depth of that study, you are more likely to be puffed up with your knowledge. Because you're looking at word studies, you're comparing scriptures, you're contrasting and making comparisons, you're making lists, you're spotting keywords, you're, just, you're, you're going through scripture and it is great, I love it, I love that type of study, but you end, can end up, it's possible to end up, to know exactly what it says and where it says it, and to actually have no understanding that that was God speaking to you. It is, it is, but many people miss it. Yes, but, but if you get it. Yes, oh yeah, it's wonderful. It's wonderful, yeah. It's like with Ashley, we're doing... Um, Esther. Yeah. And we always. Yeah, you it's know, wonderful. Yeah, exactly. It's wonderful. It is. Of course, it is. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying is, if you're in that sort of study okay. and you're refusing to apply it oh. to your life, if you don't think it applies to you, because I'm okay and I know the truth and I I live okay and I'm not yeah. a sinner and uh, uh, yeah, I, you know, why do I need that? It's possible to miss the application. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, to skip them, or you know, <laughs> exactly, or one or two word answers. <laughs> you know, it's possible to do that. Um, and as I say, unfortunately, um, 
spiritual pride, we are all capable of it. All of us. All well, of us. I've got a fading memory. Absolutely <laughs> wonderful because I don't remember, but at the same time, because I've been studying for so long, you just have a sense. Yeah. So I yeah. Quote, huge yeah. No, 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 nor can I, but I do know people who can. No, no, I can't. I can't. I, I cannot. Verses, but not whole chunks. Oh my gosh, no. Um, <coughs> okay, so uh, verse 12, um, Paul, uh, Jude says in verse 12, um, Jude, 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 sorry, over to Jude again. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts, and when they feast with you without fear, Fear caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. So um, these men who are, uh, and Peter, going back to Second Peter, sorry, they're springs without water, mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man has overcome, by this he is enslaved. Yeah, sorry, I'm going backwards and forwards from Jude to Peter. So first was Jude, and then this is Second Peter. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, 17 and 18. Um, and in Jude, I'm sorry, it's, it's, um, in Jude it was, um, thank you, yeah, from 12, yeah, 12 and 13, yeah, yeah. So we are utterly dependent on the grace of God and we are not to boast in any self-sufficiency, we are not to become so arrogant that we reject authority, we are supposed to submit and surrender ourselves to God. And, um, and if you do that you will find it much easier to submit and surrender to other people in terms of submit yourselves to one another. Um, it won't be difficult if you are used to doing that with God. And it is entirely evident, those people who do not do that. It becomes very evident when you're with a person over time who does not know how to surrender or submit to God. Um, Mm. So Peter and Jude describe these men and uh, talk about them at um, church dinners or fellowship dinners and how they carouse and how they've got eyes full of adultery and how they distort things and how they drag new believers into their carousing and, um, um, and they're showing up as stains and blemishes. Peter will say that later in chapter 3. Um, he doesn't say how they aim to make money but he gives you a couple of clues. So how do false teachers generally want to make money? Yeah, by charging, yeah. Charging for what? Yeah, so charging for what they would say is a spiritual gift. Charging for their spiritual gift or for the outpouring of their spiritual gift. But we know, I mean, you hear about ministries like that all the time. We know that there are people doing that in the Christian world now. And the other way that, that they um, want to uh, um, make money is how? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, asking for yeah, asking for donations, asking for money, but also he uses Balaam as an example. So why does he use Balaam as an example? Did you look up numbers at all in any of the homework? I think I said something about numbers online, and probably precept have sent you to numbers. Um, he was. He was hired. He was offered money to curse Israel. Offered money to curse Israel. I just think about that in terms of that was Balak, the the king of the Midianites, who was offering Balaam money to curse Israel. And Balaam was saying, "I can't do it." He wanted to do it. He wanted to take the money. In fact, he did take the money, but he couldn't do it. God turned it into. Um, but so, what did Balaam do in the end? Because he wasn't able to curse Israel. What did he do? I mean, you could say that the false teachers, like Balaam, wanted to take money to use their spiritual gift. His, his gift was prophecy. So, he, you know, he wanted to take money to do that. So he wanted to make material gain from a spiritual gift. So that's happening all the time. But what was his actual, what did he actually succeed in, Balaam? He did end up blessing them. That's because God made him bless them. Yes, yes. But but what did the? What, if you go to Numbers, go to Numbers twenty. I think it's twenty-five. Go to Numbers twenty-five. Um, while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, for they were invited, sorry, Moabites, not Midianites, for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was very angry against Israel. What Balaam succeeded in doing, which is what Peter and Jude use him for, is that he succeeded in showing the way to to bring Israel down without him having to curse them because God was stopping him curse them. And what was the way he managed to bring Israel down? Mixed marriages, immorality basically. He encouraged immorality or he showed the way to encourage immorality because he wasn't able to directly curse Israel. Now just think about that in our day. In our day. So we've got false teachers who are making money out of their whatever their spiritual gift is. And are, they have huge followings, hundreds of thousands of people, very charismatic, saying what people want to hear, charging huge amounts of money, flying in private jets, doing all of this thing. Not that a private jet's bad, I'm not saying that. You know, I like to fly business class when I can. So, you know, I don't mean that. But what I do mean is um, that they are making money, deliberately making money, and selling something false. But the other way to bring the people of God down is to insidiously encourage immorality and sin. And that's what Balaam did. If you read through those chapters and then you read in um, uh, Second Peter and in Jude, that is what Balaam managed to do. And... Um, um, is it, would it be a parallel to be not putting down borders as to... You know, for instance, where the young sleep with people. Exactly that. It's exactly that. Yes, 
exactly that. And that's, that's what I was going to go on to. Okay, give me some examples of that then that's going on in the church where you could say whether or not you would recognize it as false teaching, as a false teacher or not, what is Satan being very successful at at the moment in the church? Marriage. Marriage. So, you know, now marriage is completely, you know, it's... Homosexuality, so no marriage can be between the same sex. Even in churches, that's happening. Transgender. Transgender. Now we're going to, we're even considering baptism services for transgender, <laughs> for people changing gender. They'll have a celebration baptism for that. They're considering that. This is mainstream churches. This is not, you know, on the fringe things. <laughs> this is mainstream churches. So we've got marriage, assaulted marriage. We've got. Um, a transgender, we've got all the associated things that are going on with that, going on inside the church. You see, if Satan can't get you with false teaching, if he can't get you to give your money to some evangelist or some teacher over here, he will get you in your thinking, in your inability to stand against the tide of culture that is sweeping into the church. Abortion. Yeah. They would have false success that they would give in their papers. Yeah. And I just see all the way through. Yeah. 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 But they were not believers, John. Yeah. The blown up expert. Yeah. And it's everywhere. Yeah, everywhere, of course it's it is. Yeah. You've got it worse in the church now. Yeah. Much. But it's been a pattern for years, mm. which is mm. being followed now in a different... Mm. I think the thing is, it was obviously going on in Jude and Peter's day, so you can't say it's a new thing. Yeah. They, were, they were coping with different things. I don't suppose they had transgenderism to cope, cope with, or abortion in any outward... Um, any knowledgeable way anyway at least so I think but I think they were facing their own issues and they knew that immorality was infiltrating the church they knew it and it was coming in by false teachers and so you and I might say well you know it's not new it's always been going on and blah 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 but it's t it's it's gathering momentum and it has been doing that and in our last hundred years it's gathered so much speed that it is almost devouring the church. And that's the problem now for us because it's becoming harder and harder now because we have let things go and let things go and let things go. It's becoming harder and harder to stand up. And actually, I honestly think that the church is responsible for what has happened in our nation and in the world. We are responsible because we have not st stood up. We were saying God condones this. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes, of course. Because the church has forgotten that it's supposed to be different. It's supposed to be different, yeah. Bible, the word, everything. 
But that's because, as you just quoted someone, they're taking scripture and saying, well, that's just a story made up. As soon as you say that about even one verse, you wreck the whole thing. You're denying the whole thing. Because if God didn't write that, then he didn't write any of it. So that's the thing, and that's what we've allowed. We've allowed that in our churches. We haven't stood up and said, no, we are not having that. And so we are where we are. And I think, actually, we've moved, actually. This last probably 10 years, maybe a bit more, 20 years, we've moved from... Do you remember when um, uh, Lenin and... um, Marx were on the scene, you know, communism was rampant. And, and Lenin said, if you give me one generation, I'll change the whole world. And he almost did. And, and so they went from sort of theocracy, so where there was some sort of God and you followed him and you kept his rules, to this kind of, you know, we're, I'm setting the rules and you're all going to do what I say. So some, what do you call that, autocracy? or No, not that, you call that what? Anyway, so, you know, you, we've got to follow our government, we're going to have this. But we've moved now, even from that... We've moved into, I can say what is right for me, and you can't tell me I'm wrong. So now it's all about me. Everything I'm going to do, and everything I say, and everything I think, and what I decide, and where I go, and all of that is going to be all based on my judgment, and you have to tolerate it or agree with it. You can't tell me it's wrong. So we've moved even away from you know, our social structure I think we've moved out of it already because now, look what's happening everywhere you go, you know, on media and so, so on social media and all of these things. You, you, if you say anything against anybody or any type of living that you think that's wrong, whoosh, comes back the deluge. Who are you to say that's wrong? We can live the way we want to live. So we've, we, it's called, I suppose we've called it tolerance, we've called all of this, we've called it live and let live, we've called it loving your neighbour, we've called it all sorts of things in the church, but it's resulted in everyone doing what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And even that's not new, it's just newish for us. In Judges, if you read the end of Judges, you know, every man did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king in Israel. And we have no king on our throne, even in the church. And every man does what is right in his own eyes. And, and it's, a, it's a scandal and a tragedy of huge proportions. And if we're not careful, we can read the scripture without moving it into 2019. You can do that easily. You can think about Balaam and Balak and look it all up and read Numbers and Deuteronomy. And, and you can see what happened. And, and you can see it all as, in, as historical, which it was, historical fact. And you can miss the fact that it was written for our example, that we were supposed to learn from that and apply it to our own lives and look at my own life and see where am I guilty of allowing that, allowing Balaam to, to filter in sexual immorality, all sorts of immorality into the church. How have I encouraged that? You know, how, what have I done? How have I done it? It's, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's I think it, that's it, Brenda. What we haven't done, what we haven't done. Yeah, yeah. And you see, Peter's predominantly thinking about a certain group of people. Who's he thinking about? Yeah, but what type of believers? I mean, when he's warning, and when Jude's warning, 
He's specifically warning about new believers or people on the edge of believing or young believers. You see, Satan has attacked the young. Our, I mean, it's so obvious in our world that there is an assault on young people, on children and on teenagers and on young people. It's just this massive assault. There is chaos and confusion everywhere. I mean, they don't even know whether they're male or female. Can you even imagine? It's like beyond imagination. So, of course, there's this, this chaos. And chaos always creates despair. Always. Because if you can't sort out in your head something that's right or wrong or a path that you know this is the right way, you're, you're just ending up going round in circles with no answers and a million questions. That's where we are. That's where we are. And new believers or potential believers in the church or young people who haven't had the benefit of godly parents or, or, or people who've had Christian parents who haven't behaved like Christians, you know, they are under attack. And that's who Peter's writing about. He's writing to a church and saying, you need to know a false teacher and you need to get rid of a false teacher and not listen to him because they will do damage like you can't imagine. And that's happening already and has happened in the church. Exactly. Yeah. So, Peter's writing to new believers, and new believers need mature believers, and that's supposed to be us. We're supposed to be mature believers. So we are the ones that Peter is saying, you need to take a stand, because new believers won't know enough. They won't know enough. And people on the edge of Christianity, wondering whether to be Christians or not, they don't know anything. So you need to be able to spot the false from the true. You need to be able to um, know what real faith is, what it looks like. Um, um, so if in order to spot that, what have you got to be doing? Know the word, yeah. Yeah, that's always the right answer, Angela, isn't it? Always know the know the word. And be able to spot the fake. You need to know the know the word so well. You need to know the real so well that you can easily spot the fake. You know, I've talked about that before and you know this, that when they used to train bank tellers, they used to just they never showed them a false note ever or a false coin. It was always just the real thing. For three months. They used to, because I, I worked in a bank at the time when they used to do that, and oh. they would um, train them. And until in the end, you know, the people who were training were sick of the sight of, and the smell and the everything of, of a real banknote, because but as soon as a fake one came across their way, they knew it instantly, yeah. instantly. That's what we're supposed to be doing as mature believers, knowing the real thing. Um, so Peter uses illustrations to make his point, and so did Jude. Um, Jude calls them hidden reefs. 
Um, what's the problem with a hidden reef? You can't see it, and therefore you'll cut your. You get wrecked. Exactly, you get wrecked. You get wrecked, and that's the problem with hidden reefs. As such, the false teachers who are among believers are hidden reefs, and they are um, the new believers, young believers, even mature believers are potential. They're at risk from these um, and uh, for a potential shipwreck. Um, Jude says their condemnation is sure. So God knows who they are, and they are going to face judgment. That's definitely going to happen. But in the meantime, both of them say, beware. Beware. Okay, clouds or springs. That P Peter says springs without water. Um, and uh, uh, Jude says clouds without, without water. What, what, does th what does that mean? What's wrong with that? Yeah, but what's the problem with a, a cloud without water? What would be the problem with that? Yeah? Well, normally, if you, if you live in a dry and arid land, which Israel was, um, you know, they needed the rain. And so what they're both of them saying is, you're promising something, but you're not supplying it. Ah. So a false teacher promises rain, promises uh, life-giving um, words and, and teaching, but is actually not supplying it. So you're like worse than useless because you're raising hopes and then not, not fulfilling. So uh, clouds without water, um, autumn trees without fruit. What does he mean by that? That was Jude saying autumn, Lee, autumn trees without fruit. Yes, yes. Um, yes, he says, Jude says, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. So what's the matter with an autumn tree without fruit? Or what's the, the, con the comparison with a false teacher? What's the purpose of a fruit tree? Fruit. To produce fruit. False teachers don't produce fault, fruit. They don't produce fault. So that fruit, so they are doubly dead. They don't produce fruit because they have no root. They can't because they're not operating with the Holy Spirit. Exactly. It's only from the Holy Spirit. That, that you get fruit. Yeah, yeah. So what do you know from a false teacher? What will you expect to see from a false teacher? Error. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But in terms of fruit, nothing. nothing. So what will happen to the people who are listening to the teaching? No fruit in them either. And actually, not even no fruit, but no change. No, and, and actually, not even in a bad way. Let's not be con condemn condemning them necessarily, so you've got no fruit, so therefore you're not where you should be. But also, that means there's no hope, there's no change, there's no peace, there's no joy, there's none of the blessing, and all of the condemnation. Hmm. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. As soon as you say the Bible's not true, as a believer, you are stripped of every foundation. I mean, yes, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the witness of the Holy Spirit, but it would be easy to say to yourself, well, is that really the Holy Spirit? Is that me? You know, what, what's going on there? So the problem is when you, I look at the problem, you say, well, people generally say, all of us here have said, well, you've got to do something. Mm. You've got to stand up and do mm. something. Mm. Like you have a man who's been a priest for 
he's probably 65, more than I thought. 65, probably he's been a priest for 60 years. And you're now going to stand up and you're going to say, you're wrong. I said to Brenda, the next time I go, I'm not going to this sermons. If I did, I said I would walk out. I will not listen to such rubbish and untruths. Mm. But it's difficult. It's very, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is very difficult. But then you see, that's that's another thing, you know, about authority. Um, false teachers claim authority. They say that they are in authority. Mm. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't here, but I understand that, that you had a thing in the UK called heavy shepherding. Yeah. Heavy shepherding, um, which is... My understanding basically is that, you know, I'm, I'm the boss and you're going to do what I say and you need a covering, especially if you're a woman, you need a covering and that covering has to be a man because you're you under the authority. If you don't like it, get out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So first of all, that is completely unscriptural. It is completely and utterly against the word of God. Jesus himself said, if you want to be a leader, you have to be a servant. Leaders serve. That is the general description of a leader. You serve. You do everything you can to make sure that the people that God has put into your care are uplifted, encouraged, made responsible, made to, you know, to go out on their own and trust, trust the Lord for it. So this idea of authority in the church and in all sorts of other ways is completely alien to Scripture. It's alien. And... Um, Yes, lording it over. And false teachers love that. They love it. And that's why the, re the regular church, the kind of, um, what do you call it? Um, traditional. traditional churches, thank you. They have to have that because they can't have the congregation knowing what they know because then they wouldn't be in authority. So, I mean, typically, the congregation hundreds of years ago were not encouraged even to have a Bible, let alone read it. And because as soon as you can read it, you're going to ask them questions and they may not know the answer or they may not want to give you the right answer. The tragic thing is we're not in the Baptist church. Yeah, oh, okay. I heard a brilliant thing. Somebody came into the parish church. He was Irish and basically he had a death threat thing situation when he was young. So he went to his priest and he said, what actually happens to me when I, you know, if I die? And the priest was going round in circles. He asked a few. Hmm. He said, do you know none of them? Knew? No. So I found out for myself that he became a real Christian. Praise so God. Yeah. Praise God. These the priests said that they didn't know. Didn't know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they get half a point. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so no fruit. And, um, and, and, that, and by that fruit, I don't just mean good works and things like that and transformation. I mean also joy and peace and blessing and all of those things. No fruit. No fruit in the lives of other people and definitely no fruit in their own life. Wild waves of the sea. Um, I can't remember now if... Um, I think that's Jude who says that. Yeah, Jude. Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame. What does he mean by that? <coughs> yeah, it does remind you of that. What happens when you're at the beach in, in a storm? When it's pouring? Yeah, <laughs> it's not very nice. But the waves, what, what about the waves? When, you're, when the waves are coming in on the beach in a storm, what's the overrising thing? The 
push you all over the place. Yeah, they push you all over the place. But even if you're walking just at the edge and you can't be touched by them, they make a lot of noise. noise. The crashing sound of waves in a storm, they make a lot of noise. Yes, that's what Jude is saying. They are wild waves of the sea. So they are crashing in, they're making a lot of noise. And when they go and the storm passes, when they go back to wherever they belong, what's left on the beach? Rubbish. There's a lot of rubbish because they've brought in all this rubbish. That's what Jude's saying. It's a lot of noise and a lot of rubbish is left when they go. And yeah, it is, isn't it? It is. Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame. Isaiah, I think, 57 verse 20 says the same thing, that all the words of the false teachers can only produce flotsam. Um, And then finally, wandering stars. Um, Jude talks about wandering stars. What's the matter with a wandering star? You don't get direction from it, exactly. So if you're following a wandering star, because Jude is saying that's what these false teachers are, they're wandering stars, what's going to happen to you? You're going to go all over the place and not end up where you want to be. And that's the point. Um, If you're following a wandering star, it's like sometimes they're beautiful and they're brilliant, like a shooting star across the sky. (laughs) But you can't follow them or set your life course by them. Um, So... Um, The way of the false teachers is to entice new believers and promise them freedom. Um, I think it's Peter who says that. I'm losing track myself between Peter and Jude. Yes, Peter, verse 19, uh, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So false teachers promise freedom. What's wrong with that? Because in Christ we're free. What's wrong with promising freedom? It's promising what we already have. Yes, it's promising what we already have. But what so, what, when, when false teachers promise freedom, because I think I said a couple of times ago that they use Christian words. So they use deliverance. They use redemption. They use all of those words, inspiration. They use the spirit. They use all of our Christian vocabulary, but they make it mean something different. So when someone says when someone says to you, I believe in Jesus, you know, that's not enough as a statement on its own. It, you know, I'm not saying you should say to them, Well, what do you believe about Jesus? You know, but, but that's the question in our mind. Well, what do you believe about Jesus? You say you believe in Jesus, but what does that mean? And so uh, this is what he's talking about here, that they're promising freedom. But what sort of freedom are they promising? Yeah, false freedom, which is what? People believe they're free, but they're really going their own way. Yes, yes. Yes, it it is. But... Yes. But if I asked you what Christian freedom is, what would you say? What's Christian freedom? What is the... I mean, Jesus says, doesn't he? You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So that's, you know... and, And Paul says in Galatians, it was for freedom that you were set free. So freedom is a Christian word, and it, it has real strong meaning. And people want to be free. They want to be told they're free because they don't want to be told that they have to do certain things. So freedom means different things to different people. What does it mean, Christian freedom? What does it mean? It means knowing the word of God because in the word of God are these boundaries that keep you free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so... 
When you say, I mean, there's a song, isn't there, which I love, actually, so I don't like to say anything bad about it, because I do love it. We're no longer a slave to fear, you know. Yeah, uh, the song is, we're no longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God, and that's repeat. And I, I do really like the song. Um, and that's freedom, isn't it? I'm no longer a slave to fear, I'm free from fear. What does the Bible teach about what we're free from? What are we free from? We're free from the power of sin. Yeah, and bondage. So we're free, not just from the penalty of sin, the guilt of our sin, we're free from the power of sin in our lives. But false teachers will never tell you that because they won't tell you that sin's an issue. They'll tell you that you're free in Christ because he paid the penalty for your sin. But they won't tell you that he's set you free from the power of sin so that actually it's now possible for you not to sin because you're no longer a sinner you're a saint. So whereas before you had to sin, because that's what sinners do, now you don't have to sin. You have power. Now, it may be difficult. Sometimes you may not manage it, but you are in it. you're not a slave to sin anymore. But false teachers won't teach that because they won't talk about sin. They won't talk about any need for redemption, um, repentance. They won't talk about that sort of freedom. Why not? Yeah, because it doesn't apply. Because actually, they've got no understanding of that. Mostly, that that, that you there is a, a, there is intrinsic in the gospel message and in the reception of the Holy Spirit, there is freedom from the power of sin. And as soon as you tell someone that, what's going to happen? As soon as as soon as you and I know we don't have to sin, if you truly are a believer, what's going to happen? Yeah, if you're truly a believer, what's the desire of your heart? Right, what would we call that? Give me a word, a nice Christian word. Holiness, you want to be holy, don't you? You want to be holy, you want holiness. You don't quite know what it means, but you want it because that's what God is. You want to be holy. That's the desire of your heart. Now, if you're never told that that's possible, if the only thing you're ever told is you're human, you make mistakes, of course you're going to fall, you're going to fail, but don't worry, you're fine. Don't worry, God loves you, and he wants you to be the best person you can possibly be. He wants you to know freedom. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to have peace and not worry about things. Can you see, yeah, but can you see how subtle it is and how close it is? Yes, God does want you to be the best person you could possibly be. But he doesn't give you the wherewithal to be it. No, but what is the best person you could possibly be? You could be like Christ. But the best person you want to be, if you are not a believer and if you have no understanding or if you are a believer and no one's ever told you that that's what's going to happen, you're going to be transformed into the image of Christ. If no one shows you who Christ is and, and how he taught and what he said and shows you the word of God, you won't have a clue about that. And you'll think that what your idea of the best person you could be is what God's idea is. And so you'll be striving and trying and thinking you should be that person and if you have got the Holy Spirit all the time, you're stifling the work of the Holy Spirit and reducing the possibility of receiving any joy or peace or growth in the Lord. So not only, this is not necessarily that you're not a believer, but it's that you will live an unfulfilled, unsatisfied life because you're trying to be a person that God never intended you to be in the first place. So it's always a dissatisfaction and a despair. Exactly. 
You've lo- you lose joy. There's no joy in it. There's no joy in it. And we have churches full of people without joy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, the, the promise to us is, you want to be holy? God wants you to be holy. Therefore, you will be holy. Eventually, at some stage, you're going to move along a road and it's going to get tough sometimes, and yeah, but you will be holy. And in some ways, you already are holy because God is in you. But the, th- the, whole, the whole thing is, this is not a direct lie against the obvious truth. This is something that sounds so good. I am so tired on Facebook of seeing posts by people that are encouraging me to be all I can be. Christians, be all you can be. You can do it. Don't worry. God will never give you anything that you can't bear. That is a lie. Of course he will. Because if you can bear everything, you'll never go to him. He will give you things you cannot bear so that you go to him. So that his strength overcomes your weakness. So that his grace is sufficient for your needs. So it's a lie to say God will never give me anything more than I can cope with. But can you see how that has just come into Christian speak? We say that to each other. I probably said it. We say it to each other. But it's a lie. No temptation has seized you, 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. No temptation, that word can be test or trial. That's where they take it from. No test has come to you except what is common to man. And God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able. And everybody stops there. For he will always provide the way of escape so that you can endure it. What's his way of escape? Exactly. Asking him, crying out to him, God, I cannot do this. I cannot go on. I'm going under if you don't hold me up. That's the bottom line. Yes, a million times I cannot cope with what, God, with what the world is throwing at me, but God can. But you see, we have to know the difference. We have to know what freedom is. We have to know what holiness is. We have to understand the difference between truth and error. And, and I guess, you know, I'm always going on about the same old things. I know that. I know I'm always going on about the same old things. But it's really important because there's a whole load of new believers out there and they're getting lost. They're getting lost because no one is telling them the truth. Yes, you are going to face some really hard times. You're going to have to make some choices you don't want to make. You're going to lose friends by it. You might even lose family by it. You may have to stand on your own, and it will be a lonely, desperate place. But if you cry out to God, he will fill your life with joy and peace and blessing, and you will find hope in the midst of that desperate place. If no one teaches that, we're going to have a whole load of people Believers or new believers or slightly you know, on the edge people who are not yet believers and they're all going to go the wrong way and live lives of desperation, quiet desperation. And it is so sad. So sad. Um, false teachers offer false freedom. Um, false teachers tell people how good they are, how great you are. You're already good. God loves you as you are. 
Oh my goodness, God loves you and he needs you. He really needs you. <laughs> God doesn't need any of us. We're like slugs. <laughs> Honestly, we're not it's slugs. Worms. Sheep, let's be sheep. Worms, yes. Yeah. No, yeah. He doesn't need us at all. He wants us. There's an ocean of difference in there. False teachers promise freedom and they, off, and they end up giving slavery. They promise life, but they, they give death. The, the promise is... False expectation, definitely, yeah. That's what I mean, you know. They're holding out a, a, a something that's like a shadow or cotton wool or it can't be attained. And so the people who go for it are constantly disappointed. Constantly disappointed. Yeah, exactly. They never make it because they think that they have to make it when all the time Christ made it for them. It's all about me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's glad. The heart is glad. I can't remember where it is, but yeah. Hope deferred makes the heart sick and. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, finding or have receiving freedom means that you know purpose and meaning and fulfilment in your life, and Jesus Christ sets you free to be the person that God intended for you to be, and that is a person who is like Christ with your own personality, but with His character. I love that about God. I love the fact that He wants us all to have our own personalities, that He made us that way. But our character, he's shaping to be more like Christ. No, exactly. And we're all different. And he doesn't need any of us. But he wants us because he loves us. And that's to me, is so much better than, than the... Um. So, as we um, come into more and more truth, um, Jesus says we will be more and more made free. That's what in John 8, um, 32, that's a continuous thing that's going on. As you know the truth, the truth will make you free. You're set free, of course, at first. The chains are broken, but you'll be made free in your living yeah. as you know the truth. Um, Peter says that um, in chapter 2, verse 20, um, For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Um, uh, Yeah, If, if you've seen, if you've had some knowledge of Jesus and you return or you're drawn away, your last state is worse than the first. So, sinful tendencies, sin, uh, the flesh, doesn't disappear when you become a Christian. They just hibernate (laughs) and get stronger. Why is that? I mean, if if you made up your mind to reform, so you made 10 New Year's resolutions, you know, You'd find some of them easy and some of them difficult. And maybe let's just say nine out of them, nine out of ten you managed to do and you reformed. Um, why would the urge to do them get stronger? Because we've got a propensity to sin. Yeah, yeah, we've got a propensity to sin. Because holiness isn't just not doing the wrong things. Holiness is not just 
doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. Holiness is being like God. You can't be like God. Only Christ and the Holy Spirit in you can make you like God. So all of the rules and the regulations, and even if you are set free from some of those, you'll find in you this growing tendency, this urgency to do the thing you know you don't want to do. And it's only surrender and submission to God, only by saying, I can't manage this, that you will end up being um, filled with the ability or the Spirit will take over. True holiness is more than conquering temptation. It's more than overcoming um, all the stuff that you don't want to do. Holiness is having the desire to please God. It's having the, the real desire in your will that you want to be like God. That's what being holy is. <laughs> We all forget, John, yeah. Well, sometimes I say I forget, but actually I didn't forget. I just didn't want to do it. So, Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've got, I've got a question here. How do you measure up? Um, because really, Second Peter is written to mature believers about new believers and about those who are likely to fall prey to false teachers. So the question is, what will you do to disciple new believers to come alongside even more mature believers, but to come alongside those people that perhaps don't understand all of this? What will you do to do that? Because people are going the wrong way. And it's happening today, tonight. People are getting together in groups and they're being taught error. Or they're watching something online, or they're reading something, or they're and it's wrong. It's error, and they're going to end up going the wrong way. So what's our responsibility? <coughs> yeah, to tell them. What else? I want you to think about this because, you know, we have this building seven days a week. Seven days a week. This is our building. We rent it. Nobody else uses it. It's just us. And it's free a lot of the time. I mean, empty. And everybody in here knows people. And you could all bring people here and sit around the Word of God and make yourself coffee and bring cake if there's no cake here. And you could determine to disciple people. You could determine to come together with some other believers and pray and fast maybe, just pray. You could come and play some music. You could start a worship band. Anything. You could do anything to encourage other believers into a lifestyle that honours God through the word. And you could do it for nothing. You could have this building for nothing. If that's what you're going to do, just welcome. Come right in. If you want to have a prayer group for some particular thing, anything that is honouring to God, you could do in this building. And I'm only saying this because, you know, you may not know other buildings that you can use or they might charge you for it. There's no charge here. You can just come and do whatever it is. And actually, we're all responsible to do that. All of us. I mean, for those of us who've been studying the word even for five years, you know enough to teach someone else. Maybe not in the way that I do it, but you know, you know enough to sit down with a two or three or four other people and have fellowship together. Maybe take communion together, pray together, 
you know, maybe every other week if you can't make every week, maybe once a month. There is so much opportunity and so many people who are going the wrong way. So, Father, um, yeah, I pray, Lord, that um, each one of us will be um, um, caught by that, Lord, and um, that we will uh, go away and pray and ask you, how can we do something? How can we be instrumental in bringing other uh, other new believers or young believers or people who are not quite there, how can we help? How can we come alongside them and um, help them to see the reality of life in you, Lord Jesus? Um, and I don't know all the ways that we can do it, Lord. I just know that you've made this, this building available and, and that um, it's here. And it's here for your use and for your glory. And so I pray, Lord, as I say, that each one of us will go away and think about it and that we will decide, even if it's not here, we will decide that in, in no matter how small a way, we will disciple other believers. We will make that our business. And we will make sure that people know the truth, that they know the truth from our mouths and that they see the truth in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would make all of this real to us so that we don't just hear it and let it go in one ear and out the other. That we would apply some of these things to our lives. Um, in Jesus' name and, and for his glory. Amen. So... That a somber note to end. Well, Peter said they needed to be reminded all the time. I, I yeah. Just think it's so good. Mm. Yeah. Reminded, you know, it's this taking in, being reminded, keeping us sharp here, mm. and then we go out mm. into the world and we share it. Mm. And I do understand, you know, that these are not people to be decided. There's such a great need for it. Not necessarily in a formal way, because some people. And, and, I think I've said to you, if someone said they were discipling me, I'd have said, don't be ridiculous, I don't need discipling. <laughs> but um, she was just being my friend. And I owe so much to her. I really, yeah, I probably, she's, yeah. I, I d- no, no, that was when I went into precept. But no, she discipled me through a navigator's study. Um, 18 months she every, met with me every week and I was so hard, you know. So hard. And I, I did know everything, of course, but <laughs> no, no, I thought I knew everything. But it wasn't so much that. It was I had so many questions, and I didn't always like her answers. So I would just fight against her answers. And she was so patient, so patient, and she was really a good friend. Yeah, she, yeah. That first eighteen months, two years was difficult for me as a Christian, and she was there. Yeah, it is. Mm. Mm. Well, I had to memorise scripture. She wouldn't tick the book unless I memorised <laughs> scripture. <laughs> yes, it was amazing. It did. I thought it was a bit childish, actually, which I told her many times. But um, I'm very grateful for it now.
So, are you still in touch? Yeah, strangely enough, she moved to Southampton. Her husband and she were their missionaries, and um, he wasn't. He was in with IBM in Japan. That's and she she was there. But they w did a lot of work with um, missionaries, and they went from Japan to Taiwan as missionaries, and um, that's then they carried on with that. So they are working for navigators in Southampton. It's a big ministry actually here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's really good. I think probably they're about the best discipleship books I've ever come across because they are very, like, you know, this is what you, you pray. You pray for half a day and then you pray for a whole day and you read the word every day and you have to write down what you and share it.